Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Female Founders Network, a podcast brought to you by invoice to go I'm your host, Nat, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sylvie. Hey, everyone. We record our show in the Forbes Street studio in downtown Sydney, Australia, but we bring guests from all over the world. So you'll hear people from the U.S., the United Kingdom, Europe, the Asia Pacific, anywhere that we find women who lead and inspire others. This is a great podcast for women who are navigating business ownership, leadership, or just life. Each episode should connect you with someone else's story, but also leave you with practical tips and advice that you can use in your own life and in your own business. Hi guys, today we're speaking with Lorena Miranda Bendek, the founder of both Sonder and Holiday and Lem Lorelli. Lorena is a former steel industry operations guru who discovered and fell in love with the world of local artisans through her corporate travel experiences. In this episode, Lorena tells us the story of how she left the corporate world to start her truly fair trade luxury resort brand. In the process, she not only created a job and life she loved, but also transformed the living and working conditions for the artisans she employs. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Lorena. How are you today? I am very good. Thank you so much. How are you guys? Oh, we're good. And you're calling in from my old time zone. So do you want to tell everybody? standard. Yeah. (laughs) It's a good one. It's a very popular one. So you're in Miami, right? I am in Miami, Florida. Yes. We are just finishing hurricane season. So it's actually a lovely winter or fall. (laughs) Finally. Oh, I love Miami. I I took like South American cooking classes down there once and it was magical. You have a very interesting businesses and you sent me a video um, a while ago when you were um, applying to be on the Female Founders Network and it was just incredible and your story is incredible. So I just want you to tell us everything. So tell us about yourself, how you got this idea and then what happened. Well, (laughs) I'm going to make a very long story short. Um, I am born, I am from Miami, born Uh and raised. Uh, Both of my parents are Colombian. Um, So I speak English and Spanish. I come from an immigrant family, the very, very uh, classic American immigrant story. Um, What is that story? (laughs) <laughs> we well, have a lot of people okay. all over the world. <laughs> uh, well, in, in the in the U.S., um, well, I, I guess you can say my parents essentially both arrived here with nothing. Yes. You know, with, yes. Uh, yeah, straight on their back, and that's about it. And uh, they built something out of nothing. Yes. And um, my sister and I were born in very cushy conditions compared to the conditions in which they were born. Yes. Um, So for my parents, having two children that were American and educated and college graduates was a huge accomplishment. Yes. And a very proud one. And um, I, when I graduated college, I went uh, into the finance industry and kind of on a whim it's a long story but I I ended up in the steel business uh I became a steel trader so I was uh, buying and selling steel all over the world wow uh it was a super cool job I mean to be very frank when I first started the job I thought steel came from like I thought steel was on the periodic table okay I had no clue that it was like all the things that were that, that you know like composed of and like the industries that sprung from it, you know. Yeah. And so, um, 
like I said, I got the job on a whim. I was kind of doing a friend a favor when I said yes. I was pretty happy where I was, but the money was good. And I was traveling around the world, or the offer was to travel around the world um, on the company tab, which, of course, I mean, who says no to that, right? Mm, Especially when you're 24, 25 years old, So, which is what I was at the time. Right. Uh, when I started. So um, I started traveling, started going to all these really cool places that, you know, I wouldn't typically go on my own. Um, sometimes places that I only knew of because I checked them out on a map. You right. know, uh, I had never even heard of some of these spots. Um, so that combined with, you know, that definitely opened up my travel bug. I mean, I also had studied abroad for, you know, several times when I was in college. So I was really into travel. Where did you study? Can I ask? Oh, I went to Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida. Okay. I was a, uh, a seminal. Um, I studied merchandising and consumer sciences. Gotcha. Um, and I did study abroad in Paris, London, and in Spain. Wow. Oh, wow. So, so your parents must be like, holy shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, my, my parents were... It's funny because when I was about 19 years old, like my dad, who's like super South American, Bronx raised, you know, yeah. very like macho, he was like... I never imagined I would be allowing my little 19-year-old to go around the world like this. And, I, and the thing is that, Dad, that's because I didn't tell you. I didn't ask for permission. I was telling you I was going. <laughs> like, <you know>? <laughs> that was kind of the difference. Uh, that kind of enrages so, me a little bit, but it also is so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Dad, actually, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you this is what I'm going to do this summer. <laughs> You're like, actually, so, I'm a grown-ass woman, and I'll do what I want. <laughs> yeah. my, my dad was like, oh, my God, this one's got claws from here to Pluto Aww. and he wasn't wrong That's so, that is <laughs> but, cute Aww. yeah it was super sweet so anyway I would travel and um, you know whenever I had free time one of, the, one of the things I would do often is I would like book my you know my, my meetings to end let's say Friday afternoon yep. so then I would like stick around the weekend or take a Monday off and you know explore wherever I was for like the next three or four days at that point, it would be on my tab, but all the expenses were basically covered by the company. So it was just like, mm-hmm. you know, you know, you know, the most expensive thing to travel most of the time is the flight. And that was never yes. a problem. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I would explore a little. And of course, like everybody, like most people, we go shopping right. when you are out and about. And so I would visit a lot of these local markets and um, I would like find like just, I mean, like the coolest shit. Like it was mm-hmm. just like some some stuff I would be like, there's no way fingers made that. No chance. Yeah. You know? And it was just like totally mesmerizing and completely impressive. Yeah. And um I would bring all my stuff, you know, I'd, I'd buy stuff and then I'd come home. And, and, and by the way, I started developing like this taste for, the, for, for handmade things. Mm, yes. You know, it's like suddenly like all like the fast fashion and the things that are made quickly in factories and all that really began to lose a lot of its lure to me. And yeah, when I would I learn about the way something was made and how it took time to make and all that, that's where I found myself willing to open up my pocketbook, you know, and be like, okay, like I'm t- like, this took time. Time is a luxury, right? So yeah. what kind of things were these like, like handbags or hats or art? Everything. I mean, yeah. Shoes, art, handbags, homewares, um, and, and everything was made using resources that were local, mm-hmm. you know, uh, oftentimes very sustainable, um, and with techniques 
that these folks had developed through time that had been taught to them generation after generation. You know, you have to understand that like I would show up to these business trips decked out in designer clothes and designer handbags and luggage and all that, you know, and, and instead of here I am salivating over these things they're making. And they're like looking at me like I'm like this rich white because, you know, to them, I'm, uh, often places I would go to, I was a white person, even though I don't identify as one, nor right. do I think I look like one. But they would tell, you know, and they would say, oh, here's a white American who comes with money. Mm. And yet I'm looking at them when I'm like, oh, my God, I'm just so amazed by what you're doing. And so it was like kind of an interesting dynamic. Mm. And sometimes uh, how. I'll just say this. They felt incredibly appreciated that somebody was appreciating what they were doing. You know? Yes. Okay. And someone that they perceived was of status, you know, and I didn't take that for granted. You know, right. I started developing relationships with them. And what ended up happening was that I would um, buy these things, come back to Miami Mm-hmm. You know, go to all the pool parties and all like, you know, the fancy schmancy yacht parties and all this crap. And I would wear all this stuff and mm-hmm. people would always ask me, oh, my God, where did you get this? Or where did you get that? Oh, my God, I'm obsessed with this. This is so fabulous. And sometimes I would wear things, you know, and one like, you know, one look would have five different countries on me. Well, and people yeah. would joke, you're like a walking passport, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I was just like, my goodness, I never thought of this. And then I realized... And, and by the way, the biggest uh, region that I did the most work in was in the Caribbean. Right, okay, gotcha. Uh, li- living in Miami, I mean, going to the Caribbean is like, I think the, 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 like the longest flight is like to Barbados, and that's like three and a half hours, you yeah. know? So I, I was really centered in, in the Caribbean. And this was the steel job, right? Right, this yeah, was the steel okay. job. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and... I love the resort life. I live in Miami. I love the water. I love the sand. I love the cabanas. I love cabana boys. I love cabana (laughs) boys. I love cocktails. You know, it's like, I love all of those things, you know? And I, (laughs) and I, I said, my God, like, how cool would it be to develop a resort line, which is how this idea started, of things that are made around the world that tell a story about the things, the people that I'm meeting, that preserve their craft, that give them jobs, and that can sell it to these high-end resorts like the Four Seasons and Fisher mm-hmm. Island and, you know, Aqualina and all this stuff, right? Mm. And that was kind of like the seed, you right. know? That was kind of like the seed. And I had no clue what I was getting myself into right? <laughs> like, when I first thought of it. Um, but I, little by little, you know, I said, w- one of the challenges at first was, they, you know, they make they, they make item A, and item A is exquisite. The quality, the craftsmanship, everything is amazing. But I need it to look like this with these designs instead of their designs. You know, okay. oftentimes their designs uh, in the U.S. or like I like to call prime markets like the U.S. and Europe can seem a bit tribal. And what I was looking for was something that was a little bit more aesthetically pleasing to our sense of style and our cultures which are typically more streamlined more uh, monotone a little bit you know like the neutral colors and things yeah things that are shoppable very shoppable for the u.s market correct yeah correct um and so because i'm thinking about myself this entire time you know this entire time i'm like i am my audience i am my my 
my um, a customer. You know, right. I know what I'm looking for, and I know that I'm not alone. I know that there's a lot of people like me who love everything that I just described about the resort life. Right. Yeah. right. Um, so I said, okay, so that's going to be the first challenge. So once we started figuring out kind of what they could make what was available in terms of resources, colors, you know, simple things such as like dye and leather tanning, you know, mm-hmm. like, can you guys get this on your island? Can you guys get this in your area? Um, these were all somewhat of the challenges at first. And so with time, what ended up happening was that I would, whenever I had free time, I would kind of work around my schedule to start working on these samples. And so the job that I had paid me really well. Uh, I did really well for myself. And I had very few expenses because, you know, when you're traveling so much, the company, you know, you don't have to worry much about gas or tolls or mm. food or, uh, you know, electricity or any of those typical bills because you're not home ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you right, know? right. So um, I had a lot of disposable income. I was doing well for myself and I was kind of pouring all of this into, you know, a lot, a big chunk of it into starting this business and spending money on these samples. And the thing about the samples was that, I mean, it would be like I would order red and then I would receive a sample with the same exact item and three different shades of red. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so let's start with a swatch book. <laughs> how, about you send, how about you send me the reds you can make? And then we're going to number them. And then, I mean, this is, these are kind of like the stats, right? But all of this DHLing back and forth, I mean, adds up. It adds up and it adds up fast. And so um, that's kind of where I spent the chunk of my cash and my time in the beginning was sort of figuring out what they could do. And mind you, a lot of this stuff was via WhatsApp. Mm. You know, many places that I spoke with, uh, internet and communications uh, was not you know, was not very keen. So I had to wait whenever they had Wi-Fi. And sometimes when they had Wi-Fi, it would be in the middle of the night and I had to pick up that call because God knows when I'll be able to talk to them again. (laughs) So these, and and by the way, as I'm dealing with all of this, I never realized, and this is kind of like tisk tisk on me, but it comes in later on in the story. I never realized how these simple things that they lacked was going to be such a huge impact to scalability. Mm. until later on okay yeah and that that kind of is where we began to switch our business model into figuring out ways to help them become scalable so so, was, um, so can i just get this straight so uh-huh. all this time this was this when you were developing basically sonder and holiday which is your direct to consumer brand where you sell art the resort line and then right. at this point when you realized that there was problems with scaling is when you started to develop Lem Laurelly, which is your kind of more business-to-business wholesale, helping people work with artisan producers brand. Is that Actually, Lem Laurelly came, came about this year. Okay. Uh, oh, wow. Pre-pandemic. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, in, in, in you're kind of on, on track, but Lem Laurelly started a little bit later. And we, and we, in order for Lem Lorelli to even come about, we needed to make sure they could scale because Lem Lorelli is a wholesale business. Uh, you know, if you want to order from Lem Lorelli, you're ordering minimums of 25, 50, 100 units of one color mm-hmm. okay. of one item. So, um, and, and the reason Lem Lorelli came about was because 
Sandra and Holiday being direct to consumer, we do have we do offer wholesale with Sandra and Holiday, but since it's more of a proprietary brand, um, you know, it's not move. It doesn't move as fast, and it's and it's higher price. You know, it's a higher price point. It doesn't move as fast as let's say, you know, like a, a two hundred dollar hat is not going to move as fast as a fifty dollar hat, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And this was our way of maintaining and ensuring. Uh, the artisans were were employed consistently because the last thing you want is for an artisan to finally learn your specifications and then go off and start weaving at a different group because they're looking for work. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And right, that's a big danger. Okay. So right now you're mm-hmm. working. Well, I'm just like the the um, countries that I'm seeing represented in your line today are Madagascar, which I have a funny story mm-hmm. to tell you about Madagascar later. Um, okay. And then Ghana and Ecuador. So, are, were you? Did you start with those three, or did well, you I started with I started with Ecuador mainly, and uh-huh. it was because um, going back into the steel industry, I, I a big hub of mine was Panama, and ah, I would gotcha. go to Panama often, and I, I became acquainted with the Panama hat, and I you know interestingly enough, it's not made in Panama; it's actually made in Ecuador. It became gotcha. famous in Panama. Because the canal workers would use it, you know, and the, and I think Teddy Roosevelt was uh, famously photographed wearing one, so it just became as a Panama hat. But it's actually made in Ecuador, and when I and of course in Panama, when you go into like their touristic areas, I mean every shop is selling Panama hats, yes, right, yeah. even though it's an Ecuadorian product, right, <laughs> you know? right. So, um, but once I saw that product and I saw how it was made, and I, I mean, I started thinking. Oh my God! Maybe they can make bags. Maybe they can make fans. Maybe they can make mats. Maybe they can make this, because as long as some, as long as the the, the artisan knows how to weave a certain way, mm. now the question is: Can this material be folded, bent, and manipulated to make the shape? Right. And can you do it? You know. Right. So that's kind of like where the sampling starts. But once I know what they could, the technique they can do, I mean, it's basically limitless possibilities. It's a matter of just figuring out what can be done easily so I started with Ecuador initially I started with um I started sourcing hats um but obviously you know you need a bag if you have a hat of course if I'm doing a resort line like who goes to resort line and just you know you need everything um and then one day I am and and by the way I had samples for bags for straw bags sent to me from Barbados Bahamas Brazil I mean, Belize, you name it. Yeah. And I just could not find a straw that was Lorena proof because I am not a dainty traveler. And I know a lot of people aren't. And <laughs> they don't want their, their stuff to arrive. They need something that's either sturdy, durable, that's easy to take, easy to clean. You don't have to think about it because, I mean, if you, you know, if you spill your margarita in there, who gives a shit? It doesn't matter. It's not going to be a problem. You know, like that's like the kind of stuff I'm looking for, right? You need like, a, right, like American for, proof durability because we expect everything for sure. to last forever. Yes. I got uh, exactly, it. Exactly. Gotcha. Exactly. So one day, I walk into a grocery store, um, a high-end grocery store. I don't know if I can mention names, but I'll leave it at that. Here in the States of Miami. Um, and um, I saw this basket. And immediately, I mean, and, and it was like this wall of these baskets that were super colorful. So it was like a special item. And I was just obsessed with this, you know, technique and this 
you know, the way that they wove this, it was super strong and sturdy and beautiful. I'm expecting a $130, maybe $160 price tag. Had leather handles. It was just so gorgeous, right? Mm. I was floored when I saw that it was being sold for $38. Wow. Because I said, okay, uh. I know a thing or two about straw products. Yeah. You know, this, this retailer is not losing any money. So if they're buying it wholesale, they're buying it at least at 50%. Plus yeah. the cost of shipping, plus the money that the guy in the middle made. How much is the weaver actually making? Mm. You know? And then yeah. here it is, fair trade and kumbaya. It makes me feel good because I'm doing something. I'm helping poor Africans. No, you're not. You're actually <laughs> part of the problem. Yeah. <laughs> right. This is not helping. This is okay. what I've noticed as well, is unfortunately now, because of fast fashion, people have become so accustomed to these low prices that they balk at the idea of paying m- more of a reasonable production price for something and like selling price because they've become so used to the fact that they can get things really cheap. And then if you're developing a brand that is ethical and, and pays fair wages and, and pays, you know, for fabric that's sustainable then suddenly you're an expensive product compared to correct when this is what it should be costing for yeah yeah. correct and here's the other thing we've got this expectation of Mm. having 50 dresses that each cost like you know we want to buy 50 dresses right and we want each of them to cost like you know 40 bucks Mm. at fast fashion Mm -hmm. whereas we really don't need 50 dresses We need maybe five, mm. and they could cost $200, as they should, Yeah, and we could buy them over time, and we could be less greedy <laughs> as, like, yeah. human beings. But I think fast fashion right. has kind of screwed with our minds about what our expectations on our wardrobes are. I know, and I also think that, like, the way that the media presents celebrity culture back in, like, the early 2000s, I always remember, like, the way that women used to get torn apart for wearing the same thing and then being photographed twice in the same outfit then became like oh my god you can never be seen to be wearing the same outfit over and over therefore fast fashion took off more because of this expectation that we place on each other to yeah. always be expressing ourselves in in different clothing and a like, new, new instagrammable outfit for every occasion <laughs> yeah. you know right and everything <laughs> is instagrammable now silly 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 and you know um well, you said in the beginning about people being used to this. I go, look, yes, my stuff is expensive, and we want it to be. I don't. I don't apologize for the prices I sell things at. I don't feel bad if you feel like this is expensive. You're not my customer. Go somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to be mean about it, but essentially, what I'm trying to say is that my customer is going to see this and think it's a bargain, yeah. not the other way around. You yeah, know. Right. And that's what's been happening. Um, one of the things that. I always tell people, I go, look, you can buy a brown or let's say a black leather over the shoulder bag, you know, at Target, which is a shop here in the States, you know, big shop for about $29.99. You know, you can maybe find one at Bloomingdale's for like $150. You can also find one at Hermes for close to $5,000. Right. Right. So the, the thing is that you can find straw baskets anywhere and for an array of prices, but you're not going to find the sound on holiday ones at that price. Right. And there's a reason for that. The reason why, like I said, when I went to that store and I saw that product, 
and I saw that price. And I go, this is, I mean, I don't know if you can even say it's fair trade washing. <laughs> you know, it's right. like that you're not breaking any cycles of poverty. You're not enriching these communities just because you buy something from someone who's poor for about five or six dollars and resell it for 50 doesn't make you a hero. What really creates the change is in investing in these communities you know right. and i learned that um you know after after about several probably two almost two and a half years of like all these back and forths that i had with the different artisans and the different um samples and all that um it, it was time for me to let go of this corporate job you know mm, because at yeah. this point it had become my passion and i knew that this is what i wanted to do i knew that this is what i wanted to dedicate myself to and imagine at first, I was kind of concerned because I was like, damn, I mean, my parents who, you know, here I am, I have the job that provides me with everything and I want to let go of this to sell straw hats and baskets. Like, how do I explain this one, you know? <laughs> how do I explain it? Right. But my parents were super supportive. They saw how, like, my my soul and my light, everything just lit up, you know, when I talked about this. And I was like, because what happened was that while I was, you know, traveling and living this life and you know, making this money and spending this money, I was living kind of aimlessly and I was searching for this purpose. And I got to a place where I realized that I was so unfulfilled and it was so hard to explain because to the outside world, to Instagram, I looked like I had it everything, you know, I had it all when in fact, I was just like, this isn't all. Yeah. Like, this is not the answer, <clears throat> you know? And right. when I recognized that, the only beneficiary of my skills and talents was me. That was not enough. Huh. I was like, I was not put on this earth to be self-serving. Yeah. You know, I was, so, I have to do something. So when I saw these baskets um, and I realized that they were made in Ghana, I said, I need to find someone who's making these over there. You know, and to be very honest with you, I didn't, excuse me, I didn't even know where Ghana was. I mean, I was so used to going to Guyana that I was like, where's Ghana? Yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I was like, and of course, that led me to West Africa and all that. So I sort of Googled my way into a few people who were selling from Ghana, like on Amazon and Etsy and all that. And I was like, hey, can your weavers create designs? Like, if I give you some designs, can you be able to make it? And this, that, and the other, right? And I came across this one man who... Um, I probably shouldn't name, <laughs> but a uh, very nice gentleman. And he has his own company over there. Mm -hmm. And when I told him about me finding this $38 basket at a grocery store, and I told him the name of the grocery store, he went bananas and forwarded me the email that he sent to their CEO and how it was a disgrace that they were selling these baskets for such a cheap price and then calling it for a trade when mm -hmm. all it was doing was just creating and wreaking havoc on these communities. Yeah. yeah. So it was extremely telling to me, you know? Yeah. And um, I said, okay, uh, so can your group make our designs? And uh, I had to kind of repeat this a few times with several different groups because some groups would make it a certain way, some groups make it another way. And mind you, I'm in Miami. They're in Ghana. They're six hours away. They don't have internet. They don't have access to phones. They don't speak English. The few that do have to take, you know, have to go into into the city with their iPhones or whatever smartphone they have at the time <clears throat> and uh, go into a cafe and, you know, log on so that they can FaceTime with me or, or video chat. Right. Um, 
this was extremely difficult. So I came across one particular group whom I found on uh, Amazon and um, they uh, were already selling on Amazon. And I said, hey, can you make my designs? Like I said earlier, uh, we started working and things started going well. So at one point I started placing actual orders. And because I was selling them online or I was selling them like at pop-ups or some stores had started buying them, you know, it was kind of getting the, the idea. And, you know, I was sort of working twofold. I was working in, as a salesperson and my branding advisor and my digital marketer and my Instagrammer and my Pinterest poster and all these things while at the same time managing the operations overseas. Right. As you can imagine, I didn't sleep much. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> I was like... I can't believe I'm working this hard and I'm not making any money. I've never imagined this would be possible. And here I was. <laughs> okay. I was like, my dad's like, well, welcome to startup. <laughs> you know? Welcome to entrepreneurship. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Entrepreneurship where everybody gets paid except you. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, uh, I said, I, you know, once we started moving um, after a while, I was receiving orders in the baskets. I mean, like, which is beautiful, beautiful. Like, I would sell out. People would love them. The prices were okay. But then, again, you know, we were going to, you know, more high-end areas and and stores and so forth. And they were doing well. So, in June of 2018, I was like, okay, I want to go visit my supplier. And I said, it's time to go to Ghana. And, you know, just based on my experience with the steel business, whenever I would visit a supplier, I would visit a supplier who had a facility and machines and printers and computers and, you know, all the kind of business business basics. So that's sort of what I was expecting, especially since I had already received so many orders. Yeah. And uh, it was about 59 hours of travel. Whoa. Um, Miami to New York, New York to Lisbon, Lisbon to Accra, Accra to Tamale. And that's where the planes stopped. And then I jumped on a bus for three wow. hours, and then I got on a scooter for two. To get for to two village. hours? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Just, just to top it off at you the end. You scooted for two <laughs> hours. Yes. And I and let me tell you, on that bus, I fell asleep, and I was like, I don't care if I snore like a Clivesdale. I am so tired right now. I could care if everybody can hear me. I mean, I just passed out. I, I, was, I, I was so tired that I could really care if any of my stuff got stolen. I, would, I just... Oh. I just I was out like a light by the time I got there. And on top of that, you have to understand the heat. Yeah. It is. I've never. I mean, I live in Miami. I know what heat is like. I had never experienced a heat like this. Sub-Saharan heat is not a joke. Like, yeah. And this is in July. So, oh, wow. This is in June. Oh, June. my gosh. Yep. <laughs> in June. So uh, I get there and I walk into the center and it is completely dilapidated um there's no floors there's like mud floors there's a roof that has holes on it and everyone there is dressed in their sunday best and their sunday best i mean it was just let me just put it to you this way i was overwhelmed the very first time that i went there by what they lacked Mm. it was from a humane and personal point of view it was incredibly emotional and very tough to keep it together most times because i'm coming from such a privileged place yeah um you know 
pump your own water and I had to take a shower in a with a bucket and you know like these are like the kind of circumstances that I was just like but I'll tell you this I got used to it real fast because I was so involved in making sure that hey let's talk about designs let's introduce everybody you know I want everybody to understand who I am what we're doing where we're here and all that and it wasn't till I was there for two weeks okay and it wasn't till the last day and, and, and by the way, everything was just, there was just, we were doing so much, so much, so much, so much that um, it was like, it was really nonstop. So on the last day, as I'm packing all of my bags, uh, you know, I, I said bye to everybody. And I, I went back and I was staying like in this room, you know, because, and it was like a special room because it was close to the town and there was AC, which is a huge luxury. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will, I will say there was running water loosely <laughs> because that was kind of like a hit or miss. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had a bed. Okay. So I had a bed and I had AC. And honestly, at this point, this is like the most I could ask for. And I'm packing up my things. I'm getting ready to catch the bus at four in the morning. And as I'm putting my things away, like it just hit me and it hit me like a bag of bricks like a freight train I never saw coming I mean it was the waterworks and mm-hmm. I am not a crier I, 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 I've never been a crier and I could not control it because I realized at that moment after everything I had experienced and everything I'm, I, I got to learn from these people and I go they should not be too poor to live yeah. they have the ability to get themselves out of this. They want to learn. They want to teach. They're hungry. They're good. They're smart. They're intelligent. They're savvy. I'm like, these are not helpless people. Mm. These are people who have been forgotten by the rest of us. That's who these people are. And exploited you know? by Western companies. And exploited. Yeah. Completely. Mm. You know, one thing I learned while I was there was, these are kind of the things that I brought back with me mm-hmm. when I had the conversation with my business partner because I said to her, we need to figure this shit out. You know, um, there is a certain level or amount of exploitation that is acceptable to people when they are very poor and uneducated and made to feel or believe or made to believe that what they do or what they can do for a living is a last resort type of thing Mm -hmm. and is of little to no value. So if they're making, you know, a bowl, they're willing and you're willing to pay five dollars for that. They'll be like, excellent, this is amazing. Oh, my God, I made $5. Mm-hmm. This is where the exploitation happens. Because you're paying them $5, they're happy, okay? Mm-hmm. And then you're selling this bowl for 35 mm. right? And so, and obviously, you know, the person who's reselling it has a bunch of costs involved. And I know because I deal with those costs all the time. Yeah. But the thing is that... It is my job to tell this person, hey, I'm not paying you $5 for this. I'm going to pay you 15 and this is why. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we pay them very, very well for this. But we have to be very careful to not do a few things. The first thing is you can't spoil the market, right? Because if you spoil the market, then your competitors are going to get pissed off. I don't live there. I don't own property there. This is not my business. These are my suppliers. The last thing I need is for some pissed off competitor to come in and burn the place down, mm-hmm. right? 
and it happens in those countries. It's just part of it. Second, you don't want to ruffle the wrong feathers. You don't know which, you don't know, you know, a lot of places that we work with, and it's happened to me before, it happened to me with the steel business, where you have some of these corrupt politicians um, where they say, oh, you're paying these people how much money? Wonderful. Well, if you want to get this out of the country or onto that ship, you're going to have to pay me a premium under the table. Oh, God. What like okay. a, like a tax or like a, a bribe? A, a bribe. Oh. oh yeah, a bribe, a bribe, a bribe. And, and it, it happened to me when I was in the seal business on a few occasions, what? where like we I remember we had to get a truck up to a certain neighborhood in a particular country that was kind of civil, you know, had was a little bit war torn, and uh, the they would put gangsters in front of the city limits and say if you want if you want this truck to go up, you got to pay us two hundred dollars. Well, who was putting those gangsters in the, the mayor of the city? Oh my goodness. Like, you know, it was like a running joke. But this these are because of what my experience taught me, I said, okay, we have to figure out a way to do the right thing, but managing, you know, the situation. So what do we do? How do we fix this? How do we how do we implement this properly? And what we figured out was like, okay, well if if you want five dollars for this and I'm gonna pay you fifteen, I need to justify those extra ten that I'm giving you. Right. Mm -hmm. And the way that I justify them is, well, you have to meet my specifications. You have to have it this color, this size, this shape, and it's got to be consistent. Now, all these specifications, to be honest, is not the holy grail. You know, it's not something they can't do. It's not like I'm asking them to go from squares to circles, you know, Mm -hmm. but it at least allows for us to... um, be able to pay a premium and give this particular product prestige to the weaver and then give the weaver, you know, importance in feeling that they're part of a collection that is of a particular standard. And then, of course, that empowers them and it gives them a lot of value and it makes them feel and understand that what they're producing is worth something. You know, and on top of that, it increases their livelihood. It increases their livelihood significantly. Um, it changes their lives. Now, repeat this thousands of times, you know, and now you start seeing communal changes. And to give you an example, um, one of the sons of one of the weavers that weaves for me, he and I um, chat often because he's 20 years old and uh, he has Facebook. And so we chat on Facebook and he's kind of my eyes and ears over there. You know, he's one of them. <laughs> And uh, I said to him, have you felt, like, has your family felt a difference ever since your mom started working for us? And he goes, yeah, my mom doesn't ask us for money anymore. And the reason this is important is because that means that now the sons don't have to contribute to the house. They can now use that money to move forward. Right. Right. These are like the little things that you start seeing. And now this with time is where you start seeing these chains of poverty breaking. And that's where I said, as a business, it is capitalism 101 to buy low and sell high. But it is social entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurship that's going to say, hey, that's too low and it's not good for anybody to buy it at that price. So I'm going to give you a little bit more, but here's why. Right. Wow. And so we figured out how to blend that whole charitable component. Because the other thing is that I don't want this to be a charity. I don't want them to feel like they're being given something. I want them to believe and understand that they're earning it. Because there's a completely different concept. There's a different perception, different feeling that comes with that. And it's one that's of empowerment. And that's what you want to do. You want them to understand that the betterment of their community is coming because of this partnership. 
Yeah. It's not because it's it's not because it's me giving you, it's because you're giving me too. Yeah. And I'm able to do this, you know? Right. What do you think are the biggest uh-huh. watch outs for someone who's listening who wants to create a sustainable or ethical brand? Like you mentioned obviously like not making them feel like it's a charity. Do you think that's the the key thing like to for take fair trade if they're really creating fair trade yeah. like you are? Yeah. Like, so if, as well, your advice for someone who's been through this to someone who's listening now, what would you say to them? So I'm going to say this and I'm going to be very frank because this is one of the biggest challenges I faced. Okay. It's going to be very expensive. Yeah. And very difficult. Right. To do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Especially when there are cheaper, easier options. Typically when people go into business, they go into business and they buy from a wholesaler and they resell. That was, that's what I thought I was doing. Mm. Instead, when I get there, I realize just how far behind my retail, my wholesaler is. So now that puts me in a position like, what? How am I supposed to sell to these giant retailers and achieve and you know and really go in there and hunt the way that I know how to hunt for business when I can't deliver because my supplier is living and working in these conditions, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So the cheap thing, the easy thing for me would have been to say, you know what? Let me just go through a third party, you know, get these from someone who's already warehousing them over there. And, you know, they're still from Ghana and then they're still sustainable. So I can just, you know, do that. But then I have absolutely no oversight as to how much these people are getting paid. Yeah. And that, to me, is the most crucial component of my business. Mm. Yeah. Is ensuring that we're creating equitable jobs. That's the thing is there's always an easier way out, right? So it's like you almost shouldn't get into this. Like if you want to create a fair trade business, you almost shouldn't unless you're the type of person that has the heart and integrity that won't allow you to take the easy way out, Mm -hmm. right? Right. I'll tell you what stopped me because Mm -hmm. don't get me wrong. I had my moments where I was like – F this, like I'm over this. Like, <laughs> find me, a, find me someone who's already housing this stuff over there. Like I'm over yeah. this, you know. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I had my moments. I had, I had really bad moments. My business partner had to like tell me that I get a grip because we can't change, you know, our values when we are a values based brand. So, mm. what I can tell you is this: that integrity, that sticking to your guns, is really tough. In the, in the beginning but it's so worth it because no one can take it from you listen I can you can't corner me you can't expose me I'm not doing right. anything wrong right. you know it's like you can't call me out <laughs> right. call me out for what yeah. <laughs> you know you can't tell me I'm greenwashing or sustainable watch or I'm not come at me bring me the hard questions and I will show you you want to talk to my people you want to see what they look like now you want to see the kind of clothes they're wearing now or where they're living now or how they're sleeping yeah. because of this business you know there's my proof right. there's my proof and the thing right. about Ghana the reason why I started by the way uh, I started this when we when we finished in 2018 and I came home and I was just I mean I didn't even know like where to begin processing what I had experienced over there um i told my business partner i said we need to figure this out um it's like i don't i don't even know where to start i don't know i don't know where you know like when you have so much to do you don't know where to start it's like i mean i i don't know where to start but i can't give up you know so i go they don't have i mean they don't even have soap yeah they don't have soap you know so it was like 
what do we do? So that's where we launched our, what we call the Victoria Project. By the way, my, my business partner, her name is Victoria Cuesta. Mm-hmm. Our most popular product at Sandra Holiday is the Victoria Basket because she designed them. Yeah. So they have her name. And uh, we call the Weaving Center in Ghana the Victoria Center. And we started what we launched. It was called the Victoria Project, which is a privately funded reinvestment project in the community, in that cent- in, in that area. And the goal is, you know, to revamp the place right now we're working on figuring out a way to fix that roof we have to we're we're working with the weavers to create a capsule collection where 100% of the proceeds will go directly into fixing the roof and whoever buys an item will have access to those links where you can see where your money like you'll get the receipts like we're Mm -hmm. kind of working on how we're going to do that but um, it's about revamping the area Adding, you know, getting toilets, plumbing, running water, soap. Uh, We want to have a food program. You know, food security in those areas is very insecure. And um, sometimes a hot meal is not, you know, is not something you can get daily. So we're thinking, well, what if every day you work for us, you get lunch? Right. Right? Yeah. So that means that now we have an extra job where you have the three cooks. We have someone who's going to the market once a week to buy the rice, the beans, the meats, the butters, the oils, the salts, whatever, to cook the weekly meals for the whole group. And so, you know, what we did was that instead of offering them charity, we said, well, if you work for us and you can produce our specifications, you get paid along with benefits. Uh And these benefits include soap. You know, we all we provide them with we have a soap program, which about once every two months, we give them four bars of soap, which lasts them two months. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, and then uh, which right now during the pandemic is crucial, you know, yeah. but um, and then we, um, you know, we we're in the works. Uh, uh, you know, we, we want to start the lunch program, but we got to fix that roof. Like yesterday I was uh, I, do, I do Zoom calls with them and um, I. Uh, I mean, as I'm talking to them, a part of the roof fell. (laughs) I was like, okay, you guys need to get out of this building. And now this is an emergency. Yeah. Because there's no way that I'm going to have a weaver, you know, hurt themselves in a place where access to medical care, you know, is not granted and to weave a basket. No. Yeah. So we paused operations. We're going to figure out a way to like, or see where and how they can weave, um, but the thing about the roof is that imagine it's thousands of dollars to fix. It's not that much, but it's it's a few thousand. But for us, being a small business in the middle of a pandemic here in the United States, where the people that we typically sell to, resorts, cruise lines, golf courses, wineries, boutiques, shops, have all been shut down or significantly affected mm. by this pandemic, yeah. is like searching for water in the desert. Yeah. You know, that's a situation that we find ourselves in. So we're in survival mode right now. And on top of that, we need to do something about these extra expenses that under normal circumstances wouldn't be a big deal. But right now they are. You know? crazy. So these are kind of right. So these are kind of like the things that we're working through. But the way that I, you know, relax about it is that I realize I'm going to get this roof fixed. We're going to do this project. We're going to do this capsule. And this is just going to be another notch under my belt. And right. proof yeah. that if you that it is possible yeah. to partner with people in rural parts around the world and to have a successful, profitable business. 
That's awesome, Lorena. Do you know what? It's been such a pleasure to hear about your businesses and the story and how much passion you have for them and how much you're helping people in, in Ghana and all over the world of these artisans. So if someone wants to find um, these products and work with you, where can they find you? So, well, you can find me, Lorena, um, on Instagram. I'm at Lorena Miranda Benbeck which is my full name, both Colombian and Lebanese. <laughs> um, and, and you can find our products on our website um, and also our Instagram, saunderholiday.com. And our Instagram is saunderandholiday.com. That's saunder with an N and a D, saunder and holiday with two L's. And by the way, we added two L's to that holiday because my business partner and I were like, who doesn't want an extended holiday? <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And um, I've just um, followed all your accounts on the Female Songs Network. And um, I hope you follow us back. If, if that, that is actually a bit of a little call to action at the end of the episode as well, as you can follow us at the Female Founders Network um, if you want to see the latest from the guests and um, have the direct links to Sonder and Holiday and Lem Lorelli as well. So, thank you so much, Lorena. It was so lovely talking to you. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for And I appreciate that because I talk a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It was a great story. It was a great story. Thank you so much. Thank you, ladies. Keep in touch. Chat soon. I'm ordering one of these hats. (laughs) Right now. (laughs) Uh, All right, darling. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you by invoice to go We're an invoicing and billing app that helps business owners work and get paid from anywhere at any location around the globe. And we're helping close the gender-based pay gap because the current US gender-based pay gap sits at around 19%. Listeners of the Female Founders Network podcast